0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized today's event. I'd like to welcome all of you online watching this live stream and all those of you who watch it later. This is one of over 700 programs that the Commonwealth Club has done since the pandemic began, uh, live streaming to you. Since we don't have live audiences, at least uh, we haven't until just recently. And... uh, Our live audiences haven't returned quite in the numbers that we used to have. So we are live streaming everything that we used to do to you so that you can watch in the comfort of your home. We have a very, very interesting program today uh, with Dr. Ann Burgess and Stephen Constantine, who uh, wrote a book about uh, Dr. Burgess's work in the criminal uh, profiling field, how she was involved with the FBI right from the start of, of that program um and how they developed that uh, which has now of course been a media hit for the last 20 years uh different uh, criminal television shows and uh i'd like to start first of all thank you very much uh, both of you for for joining us uh over a live stream and your quest to decipher criminal minds it's uh, well first i'd like to say thank you for your service because this is a crucial uh thing in helping protect our society um, to, to try to capture uh, criminals uh, and to do it in a humane way, which you're very interested in. I think it's really a, a really an important part of, of being a civilization. Now, uh, so we won't talk about all the other criminal issues, but, but thank you very much for that service. Um, what, one of the things that I want to talk about is, well, first, let's start with your story of how the FBI tested you. The first thing you start the book that way, you, you went into this testing and I, I, I find it fascinating. Why don't you tell us the story of walking into the lion's den?
0: <laughs> yes. Well, there are several ways that they tested. The one that I wrote about, of course, in the book was the one where uh, going into John Douglas's office, he has a skull on his desk mm. and he really watches you to see what your reaction is going to be, what you're going to say, things like that. So and I, I found that really interesting because it isn't a technique that Mm -hmm. that can be used to see what people's reaction are. So, um, I, obviously I passed the test. Yeah. yeah, And there were some other interesting things that he would have in his office. And yet you, he was really curious to see whether you would say anything. Well, why do you have that hanging on your, your, um, Mm -hmm. coat rack, or why do you have something else? Uh, so that was really, it was funny. It was Mm -hmm. funny. And, um, I, I got used to it. I, I think the other thing I talked about the very first time I was down there, I, I wake up in the morning to all this gunfire. Mm-hmm. And I feel they had given me the room right next to where they go out and do their practice shooting at <laughs> 6 in the morning. And I'm thinking, you know, is this another test or am I supposed to run out? Is this a air raid drill or something? <laughs> but anyway, it was all really, it was all in good fun. and mm-hmm. uh, But I saw that they... They did it to others, so I didn't feel that I was being singled out.
1: Well, it's fascinating because uh, for me, and, and uh, of course there's differences, but three pe- chapters later, you talk about the one thing that struck you from all of the criminals, uh, all of the serial killers that you talked, that the one thing that they all did in common was that they stared at you with great attention to see if you would squirm when they told you certain details. And there's a similarity there, I, I you know, of, of, of testing you, testing you to see how you react. And I, I'm I'm curious. I know that there are differences, and in, in you should you know maybe distinguish those two things. But it is interesting that the, you know, as if the male mind always wants to see the female mind squirm a little bit.
0: Well, yes, that was, and of course, it was on these photographs that they had of the crime scenes, which were very, very, very real and very, fright- I mean, they were uh, very disturbing. And it's no other way of, of putting it and actually there were some people that couldn't look at the crime scenes and they were not invited back so mm-hmm. it that was a test that you had to to really pass to be able to be part of their team that was going to be looking at profiling and that made sense that made sense mm-hmm. you certainly could not do profiling if you couldn't look at the pictures yeah. and the photos so um i but that was not a problem for me mm-hmm. if you will because being a nurse you're exposed mm-hmm. to all kinds of of uh situations especially in the emergency room people come in bleeding and and so forth of course hopefully they're living Mm. but uh still it is and you have to work on them so you have Mm. to do hands-on for for those uh, patients so uh, i think that that really held me in good stead for handling the photographs at least they didn't jump out at me or anything
1: Yeah, your nursing background is interesting because you you were in nursing and then you went uh, and got a PhD in psychology, right? And then, and and then.
0: No, no, I got a PhD in nursing. Oh, Uh, nursing uh. has its own science, and uh, that was my area was psychiatric nursing. So I was interested Uh. in in uh, understanding more about the uh, the the behavior of people. So Mm. that I think is what also was very helpful for my background in, in working with the agents.
1: Did they have any other nurses involved on the FBI profiling team? I mean, was that something they looked for?
0: Uh, Not necessarily, but the first nurse that I met on the case of the little missing Ackerman Mm -hmm. girl was a nurse who then went into the FBI. Mm -hmm. So she had done it that way. Then I had the person that really put me in touch with the behavioral science unit was Rita Connect, and she was a, uh, a registered nurse first. And then became a police officer, but she kept up her skills. She wanted, that's mm-hmm. why she knew about the uh, the article that we had had written. Your
2: but it, it's a good
0: your question. It's a good background to have. the The FBI is always interested in the backgrounds that people have. That mm-hmm. they they like to have different backgrounds. And I think at a time, Ken Lanning always talks about he had a um, economics background and never thought that would would be of any necessary use, but it sure helped him to. Um, to uh, get into
1: the FBI. Yeah. So your approach uh, reminded me a little bit because you're in nursing in the medical field. uh, It reminded me a little bit of what medicine does. That is that that they're trying to standardize the approach towards something. Uh, There are people, doctors, who who feel that they are really good at what they're doing, might feel that some of the standardization gets in their way. But for the vast majority of people, it kind of ups the the, uh, overall benefit to everybody. And you talk about profiling in pretty much the same way, and maybe I thought you'd talk about that.
0: It was, and actually John Douglas, if you ever talk with him, Mm -hmm. he was very fascinated in a project I was working on, which was on cardiac rehabilitation. We were looking at how fast we could get somebody who had had a heart attack back to work. And so he listened to this and he says, this is what we want in profiling. It's, it's mm-hmm. the characteristics and how do you uh, evaluate them and so forth. So I also felt that that was an important background piece that I, I had uh, mm-hmm. that, that he was able to really relate to and ask me a lot of questions about it. So uh, that was the medical background was very helpful.
1: Stephen, um... You were pulled in to, to work on this book, and did you have any background in uh, this kind of crime writing, or or uh, did you know Anne? I mean, how did you get pulled into this project? Because it's uh, fascinatingly different, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah.
3: Yes, yeah, so I didn't have experience with this type of crime writing. I, I do have an MFA in writing and literature, uh, which... Uh, was certainly helpful. Um, Dr. Burgess and I had been working on a larger project here at Boston College, uh, an event around the Mindhunter series when that came out on Netflix, mm-hmm. uh, where we brought John Douglas up, who had written that, that book, and had Dr. Burgess on stage on campus mm-hmm. uh, to discuss what it was really like, what Mindhunter got right, what it was like behind the scenes of the FBI, to mm-hmm. pull back that curtain a little bit. And the more I spoke to Dr. Burgess and the more I learned her story Um, And how she helped take all this messy data of victims and victimology and serial killers and was able to parse it and put it into a comprehensive form that the agents could then use to capture serial killers. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it was super interesting, something that hadn't been told before, uh, neither her story nor the evolution of profiling. So we started chatting about what might be a good way to present that, and the book was the idea that came out of that.
1: Yeah, well, it certainly met its goal because it, it, it does a great job of doing exactly that. Um, to, you, you mentioned the television shows about this. Uh, have you found uh, or has the FBI found uh, that they have a great increase in applications for the profilers since, you know, like people fly around in private jets everywhere they go on, on the shows? I assume that, I assume, by the way, that the FBI does not fly its, its criminal profiling team. Once a week to a new location, uh, you know, in a private jet with nice white leather seats and everything. So why don't you disabuse people of that notion? <laughs>
0: <laughs> the only plane I, I, I uh, flew in at the FBI, and I don't know if they had any, was a little four-seater that took me from uh, Chicago Airfield into the little uh, Sananuk, uh Airfield <laughs> in the uh, in Illinois. So I have no experience with any of those wonderful jets. I don't. I don't know if they have them.
1: Sorry. <laughs> Uh,
3: Another thing is interesting. Dr. Burgess teaches one of the the most popular uh, courses here at the Boston College campus, uh, which is about forensics. And many of her students do come up and take an interest in wanting to get into profiling. So Mm -hmm. I think her work certainly opened the door to a whole different demographics of people that might be interested in that field that perhaps weren't before.
1: Yeah, that's great. It's really great. Um, So uh, maybe one other thing, Uh, those shows give the impression uh, that there's uh, you know so many serial killers that every week you can go to a new place and find another serial killer. The number of serial killers is not that high, I assume, from the statistics that I've looked at. Um, so, so how many how many a year does the FBI have to deal with? Five or six or seven or or is it more than that? Oh,
0: they, they have more than that. They have profilers coordinators what they call them now in every major fbi office in every state Mm -hmm. so you're looking at a lot of um uh potential and when they get a a potential a serial killer they really have to jump on it so i I think that they're catching them faster. That's Mm -hmm. what we hope is is happening. So that if they get and they've even it used to be three or more would make a serial killer, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And then they dropped it to two or more. They felt that you could they could understand the patterning Mm -hmm. better or uh, uh, with only two, which might be making the difference. But I will say, just, just for your, your audience to say, there's a lot of unsolved cases. You know, mm-hmm. uh, the statistics are they only settle, they only catch about 64% in mm-hmm. each state.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, that adds up over and over and over. So that's why they have so many unsolved uh, cases mm-hmm. or cold cases, as they call them. Mm-hmm. Now, whether they are serial killers, we don't know, obviously.
1: Right, right. Um, There was a case here in California not too long ago that they finally got somebody after many, many years, and he was already in his uh, 70s or something like that, um, just was arrested last year. Um, So another part of the profiling um, is uh, there's a distinction between the criminal profiling that you do and then what people complain about, which is racial profiling, stopping people on the streets by the police and everything. Why don't you draw that distinction out so that the audience knows what you're aiming at with the profiling, and this—that this is a completely different thing. So this is not a racial issue, et cetera.
0: No, and you're absolutely correct. And in, in the early beginning, that was a very uh, harsh criticism of the program. It had not, and and we were a little astonished by it because in no way was the racial issue anything that that we had ha, had had thought was going to be an issue, if you will. Mm-hmm. And we tried to clarify that this is all based on behavior. Mm-hmm. That That's where it changed from the more psychological piece. We let the psychological piece go to the uh, other people that specialized in that. But the agents were very concerned that they teach their local law enforcement as well as their agents about behavior that had a very specific pattern to it. Mm-hmm. And that's where we focused on. So it was the profile would be uh, gender. Gender. Gender was important, mm-hmm. work, uh, living conditions, work conditions, all of those kinds of things, because that's what the uh, the, the suspects and the local police could go back and look mm-hmm. at their suspects. So it had nothing to do with the racial issue. But you're right. It came up and was a uh, we had to do a lot of work on that to educate people that that's not in any way what we were intending and in fact they the um, it just so happened that there were the serial killers at the time that the project was going on which would be getting men there's always men we didn't have any females between uh, 1960, 70 and 80 and they were all white mm-hmm. so they never and the agents had to be invited in to do a profile so even though there may have been other races involved. If they didn't get invited in, they we, we couldn't do the case.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, you know this is a different kind of profiling than just stopping people on the street and frisking them and all that kind of stuff. So oh it, right, right yeah right. right. So um, the value of it. Uh, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about some of the cases, but there's uh, one case that was from the 50s before you started to standardize this and everything. The George Maretsky Moretsky case. Uh, the Mad Bomber, um, where, where a, an early version of this detective profiling uh, was able to say that if you, when you arrested him, he'd be wearing a double-breasted suit that was buttoned. Okay? So now this is, this is what people have you know, from television, that, that you can make these kind of predictions and they come true, and then you know you've got the right guy. So in this case, it actually happened that way, but why don't you draw the distinction now as you did in the book? Because I think that's a crucial thing, yeah.
0: Right. Uh, that was the mad, uh, the mad Bomber, the George Metesky case. Mm-hmm. And that was the profile that was given mm-hmm. at that time. And exactly as you read it, that was uh, now. Why did he say that it would be buttoned? Well, he was assuming that this or he's projecting that this was somebody who was very obsessive and very detailed mm-hmm. and very concerned about how he looked and so forth. So it wouldn't be someone that was just uh, uh, didn't have a tie and all that on. So saying that it was buttoned, I think, was a very logical mm-hmm. behavioral kind of statement to make. And it turned out it was. I think in the case, what happened is they did go to his home at, at, late at night and he was in pajamas and they said he could go up and change. And he did. Mm-hmm. And, of course, came down and that's where he had the uh, button, uh <laughs> Button vest and and so forth.
1: Nice. So nice. they
0: they hit it. They hit it on on, on target. And yeah. some of the profiles will try to do that. It's a little tricky because if you're wrong, of course, that will make a big deal out of it. But it, it is uh, something that they have tried. And I think. I did it. Guys, yeah, Stephen had a case. One of the, found one of the cases.
3: Yeah, yeah. There, there definitely have been cases where these really interesting uh, profile characteristics uh, will get pointed out, and people are really fascinated. And they'll say, "Wow, how how could you have thought of that?" There was one with Douglas uh, pointing out that um, th- the killer would likely have a lisp. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's interesting because even though that that's really compelling to hear. It's not very useful in the profiling process itself. The profiling process works best when you have all sorts of minute data points, behavioral elements that come together to show you a fully realized image of who this serial killer is likely to be. And then you use that fully realized uh, creation to narrow down onto the smallest possible suspect pool. So that that's what really helps is that sort of comprehensive profiling as opposed to the one-off sensational details.
1: Yeah. And and uh, I imagine that part of the process, since you're trying to standardize this, is is to not make the net so small that you that people can work outside the net and, and, and uh, you actually uh, lose the criminal. I mean, you, you you miss the criminal because your net is too small. Uh, it's drawn too too small. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, and that's why they do make more general kinds of statements, and then the local police take what they send to them, and then they look over their list and say, aha, uh-huh, maybe we should go back and interview this person or that person. So, yes, that's the, uh, that's the intent.
1: We have a very interesting case like that, but I think what we should do before we get to some of the cases is that uh, you have a couple slides, and then there's uh, some interviews. There's two interviews. Um, and uh, this is, is this the group that you... Of, of guys that you joined at the beginning is that the kind of
0: this yeah. this is the group right they've got uh right there they've got their unit chief um depew roger depew they've got your yeah. uh bob wrestler next to him they've got john douglas they got ken lanning i think they have most of them uh they, they really started with eight and i worked primarily with about four of them that were really intent on the study that we did. Don't forget, this was set up as a research study. Right. So uh, that's where I got to have more contact with them.
1: Yeah, you, you started doing research with them and, and then you got pulled into cases later, right? Correct. Yeah. All right, and the, the next slide is, is um, from, do you know which criminal Mr. Monster is? Which, which one of them that this was? And just to give you an idea about, about how they wrote to the... Police. Yeah, Stephen, that's uh, that's Berkowitz right there. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
3: But that was interesting too because uh, you know Berkowitz signed it, uh, Mister Monster, and a lot of serial killers that Dr. Burgess did research on, and the team at the BSU did research on, would uh, relate to that element, uh, and they would also describe having a monster inside of them, having mm-hmm. these sort of split realities that they lived in, where there was a monster that came out and committed these evil acts. Uh, but in their own mind, the rest of their personality was very normal. They were just an average person. So that was definitely a theme right there.
1: Uh, you, we'll, we'll we'll get back to that a little bit later too. The the idea that that the c- celebritization of uh, the serial killers has made has made change their behavior. Uh, and when you wrote about that, I, I thought of Bonnie and Clyde and, and the uh, bank robbers. And it used to be bank robbers uh, that were, were uh, during the Depression when we had money. It's like everybody would like to have been a bank robber because then they would right. have money. Uh, I don't know why everybody would like to be a serial killer now. <laughs> but, but there is something about it that, uh, that's shown on TV. Uh, and, and it's, I guess, the freedom to do whatever you want to uh, that, that attracts people. Uh, I do think it's interesting. I, I'm old enough that when Jeffrey Dahmer was the, the person that everybody talked about, it was interesting to me that Jeffrey Dahmer was pretty much a joke. People made fun of it, where they're afraid of somebody with a passion murder of their spouse or their lover, but they weren't afraid of being Jeffrey Dahmer because nobody wanted to be what he did. You know, you know almost nobody wanted to be. Nobody, almost nobody was afraid that they would do what he did, you know. But more people are afraid that they might kill their spouse, you know, or, or, or so on. So I found it interesting. And I, I don't know if you ran across that, too, that there's some people are just so far off the, the grid in their behavior that people turn them into a joke and aren't as afraid of them.
0: Well, that is true that some people are really far off on their behavior. That, that, that's uh, absolutely uh, true. And you do wonder whether there are any Con- should have concern there and I think that's what we get into with some of the prevention work is what should we kind of what red flags should we look for on people that are getting uh too far afield in their behavior and could they be thinking some of the dark things that uh the the, the serial killers that we certainly studied got into because that's that's exactly what we were trying to to look at so uh, you're right that that's uh always a concern
1: Make it any more popular? I'm sure. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Your work was helping helping make it a little bit harder for them to get away with it. So it had to make it make it worse for them. And and I, I, the next picture I think is is uh, you know shows what you were like as a as a young nurse before you got involved in this, right?
0: That's right. That's yeah. back when I was uh, just a, a registered nurse
1: mm-hmm.
0: doing regular nursing, not doing the psychiatric nursing.
1: Yeah. Uh, it, it doesn't look like you would end up getting involved with uh, tracking down serial killers no. at all. <laughs> no. And the next one, uh, the next slide is uh, a, a little bit later. So how, after, is this yeah. after you got involved?
0: No, oh, this is after I got involved. Yeah. Yes, this would have been um, uh, back well well into the 90s, right? Where I was, uh, um, uh, that's when I got into academe. I um, mm. was interviewing for for positions at both um, Boston College, which is where I had my first academic position, and then University of Pennsylvania, where I had my second major mm. academic job.
1: Well, uh, we have two clips of, of serial killers talking about what they did, and, and they're both interesting to show how they think about themselves. Um, and, and this is all part of your study. How do they think about themselves, and then how, how does their behavior reveal that so that you can that you can try to explain what it would be. So why don't we uh, play those two clips They're They're both only about a minute long or something like that. So our audience can see these people as people.
2: So I'm trying to remember this from a long time ago, but another round had entered and exited that padding area. So there were three holes. In that padding area that was head level. With her, it was off to her right to my left. She was moving about in the back quadrant there trying to avoid the shots. That wouldn't have happened. I, I realized if I'd never done it, it wouldn't have happened. But if, well, my original intention was to make it very quick and neither one of them to be aware of what was happening. And it was not to keep them from stopping the crime. It was to keep them from suffering. I had a real bad problem depriving people of their lives. It wasn't uh, the aspect of killing them. That was the aspect of possessing their bodies afterwards. So it was almost a, after an effect, evicting someone from their human body. And I'm sorry it sounds so cold, but that's about what it analogizes to. At what point do you feel that you lost the control that, you know, that, that led ultimately to the destiny? What would be different in each case? Yeah. Each one is, is very, different. Huh? Yeah. Some uh, just... Uh, uh, for an example with Shona Hawk Sean and I sat down for probably an hour just talked laughed
0: mm-hmm. I got ready to leave got up and, and as we cost we
1: did we gave each other a hug and a kiss mm-hmm. but this particular time when we embraced mm-hmm. that's when that's when that switch was flipped that
0: that, that monster came out mm-hmm. and it was Mm old. Whereas uh, the attack
2: on Quincy Jumper as soon
1: as I came in the house man, it was on it. These these two uh, men um, one of the first one uh, Kemper uh, would dismember the bodies afterwards, right? That's that's what he was known for. And the second one Surprised. I mean, they weren't looking for somebody. He he knew his coworkers. He knew friends and uh, family. He killed people that he knew well. Unusual case. So we'll we'll go back to his case. i want to end sort of with his case because it's it's got so many interesting elements in it. But I'd like to back up to uh, a case from the Bay Area, actually, the 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 cheerleader case or or whatever they call it, um, where a 15-year-old girl uh, killed another one, and it was a single. Incident, it wasn't a a serial killer, but your profiling said something about the the potential killer, which allowed them to catch her. And why don't you tell us story? Because it was set right in in Orinda uh, here in the Bay Area. Uh, And of course, it's still a well-known story. It's the 35 years later or whatever, 25 years later.
0: Right. Um, That was very important because... The, when the FBI got called in, it, it went cold for about six months. They they had potential suspects, but they just weren't um, coming up with anyone solid. And they had polygraphed all of the ones that they were concerned about because they had lots of information. They had uh, witnesses that had seen the uh, person who had shot the young girl. They saw her car. Uh, so that, that those are two very good things. And they certainly felt that she had to have lived in the area. Mm. So it became, the what, what happened is they sent the case to, to Quantico, mm. to the Behavioral Science Unit, to be profiled. They did the profile. And when they sent it back, that's when it said, well, we interviewed someone just like, you know, like you're mm. saying, but she passed the polygraph. Mm. And so then it became an issue of we better find, the agent said they better find out, what questions were asked, why she might have passed that, et cetera, et cetera. So they did that, realized that the right questions weren't asked, Mm -hmm. that they really should bring her back in and polygraph her again with someone that, with one of the FBI polygraphers, which they did. Mm -hmm. And that turned into not only was that, uh, it was over a three-hour interview, and she, the the young uh, suspect, had uh, really developed a relationship with the Polygrapher, mm-hmm. and that uh, at one point she turns to him and says, "You think I did it, mm-hmm. didn't you?" Mm-hmm. And he said, "Yes."
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And with that, she goes home, and that's when she leaves the note for her mother that she had had done this. Mm-hmm. So it became it was a very different kind of use of the poly of the uh, profile
2: mm-hmm. to
0: inspect and see whether they had used some strategies and uh, that hadn't worked. So that was very useful. The other thing is, it was a female on female. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hadn't done cases like that. It was very important for us to see whether the profiling method would work. Mm-hmm. Again, with not only female uh, offender and potential suspect, but um, that they uh, were teenagers, they were young. Mm-hmm. And most of the cases they were profiling were men, usually in their early 20s, et cetera.
3: Mm-hmm. I just I, I would add that uh, one of the reasons that case in particular, even though it was just a, a one-off case, was so important for the profiling process and its evolution. And one of the reasons we wanted to include it in the book was uh, because up until that point, as Dr. Burgess said earlier, uh, serial killers that the FBI went after were all white, were all males, you know, 20s and 30s. And in fact, all the profilers at that point were white men as well. And Dr. Burge, just being the only woman on the team, always had a sense of, you know, who's missing from this table? Whose perspective aren't we getting? Because if the idea of profiling is to be able to think your way into a serial killer's head, you need different dynamics, different backgrounds to be able to do so. And this case showed that profiling could work on uh, somebody outside of that original case study and it ended up uh, sort of justifying profile to a degree in the eyes of the FBI. And the team ended up getting more resources and more agents after that to go after a wider demographic of killers.
1: Yeah. And so it went from serial killers uh, focusing to, to even just one-off murders. How far off has, uh, how far afield has profiling gone now? I mean, is it is it useful in petty theft? I mean, it might not be worth the time and effort, but can you, if someone is a, a a thief with a certain way of doing things and so on. Can you, can you profile them and, and help them catch it? Or is that, is it not been applied like that yet?
0: No, it has been. In fact, they were doing it at the time. I'd be sitting in John Douglas's office or Bob mm-hmm. Ressler and a call would come in. They did enormous amount of telephone uh, intervention, if you will. It would be on threats. Uh, mm-hmm. People, uh, owners of stores or owners of banks or, uh, they said we there's a threat on the bathroom wall someone's going to be killed Mm -hmm. what do we do how do we how do we uh figure it out and that's where they would profile so it was used very much with other kinds of cases Mm. not just the serial killing so that's where the behavioral part was so important and uh and sure enough i i think we even put one case in the in the book where that is how they had uh uh, profiled the case. It was a, a bank type case, and there had been a. Uh, I mm-hmm. think Stephen, you probably remember that one better than I do. But that was a a good case where uh, the bank was the victim, if you will, mm-hmm. not necessarily in one person. And was the bank going to be blown
1: up? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's uh by by being so useful, you you got a lot more money um and and uh, i mean the fbi did and then the fbi uh department grew when you grew above the specialists that were working on this were there more mistakes were there were there times when when uh, you you profiled something and you never never found anybody and you wondered whether the profile was too small or it's, it's easy to talk about i mean there's so many successes but but I think when you apply something as a standard, you have to kind of understand what the downside is too. So,
0: absolutely, they they made it very clear from the beginning that they were not going to be hitting on all cases. Absolutely, no. they would do their best. Um, they made that clear in their when they sent the, the two or three page profile that it was just a uh, another resource for the local law enforcement to look at. Mm-hmm. And I think we do put in the book one where it was. Uh, it, it was not profiled in a way that was helpful initially. Mm-hmm. So uh, we we wanted to include that. Mm-hmm. Now, the other point that you make, I think is important, is who trains them. Mm-hmm. I always said anyone that was trained by Wrestler or Douglas was very, very, very good because they had been trained by the best. And they were, Douglas and, and wrestler were very demanding in terms of how they would get it. So we had, uh, I think by the time I finish the project, it was up to the third generation. So we had the first generation that I worked with exclusively, and then the second, and then the third. They were all trained by either Bob Ressler or John Douglas. But once Douglas uh, retired, then it went to the, the, I don't know how it went from there, because obviously I wasn't there. So Mm -hmm. you always have to look at who has trained the person. I think that's, Always in any discipline, very very important.
1: Any, yeah, any discipline. Um, so you did this starting in the seventies, uh, right? And, and then 80s, so your research in the seventies, really the, a- in yeah, the early eighties is profile. Right,
2: early
0: eighties.
1: So DNA hadn't really gotten started uh, yet. So DNA eventually, DNA evidence became not a competitor, but I mean, but another line of, of 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 activity. Did you did you? Uh, ever combine the two in a way uh, that that was useful?
0: Well, some of the cases we had uh, some kind of forensics on, not necessarily as as, uh, specified as today, but they had the groupings. You still had blood groupings, and they had some things that they could point to. But we're... Where I think forensics has made such an impact is is excluding people. Sometimes they would have someone they thought absolutely was it, and they run the forensics and it wasn't. So it, they would read, he uh, was exonerated. And that was important. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think even today, people use that as a very helpful uh, measure. But with forensics now, it, it makes it a lot easier, if you will, if you have that. Both parties, you know, have the victims and you have a suspect. That makes it a lot easier to um, to, to, to profile, I guess you could say. You don't have to profile if you've got the forensics necessarily.
3: Right. But there was a a bit of a gap period too, where uh, DNA wasn't sort of collected in a repository in any sort Mm of, you know, centralized system. And there was one one particular case which we ended up uh, cutting out of the book where it talked about uh, profiling a killer who had a, a pretty long career and profiling all the details very accurately at the BSU. Um, not able to catch the individual. But then when forensic be- became more mainstream, mm-hmm. the forensics proved that this was the correct individual and the profile and the forensics came together to make a really compelling case against this person.
1: Yeah, that's great. Yeah, well, the
0: BTK ki- uh, killing was was one. Don't forget, mm-hmm. that went on for years. Uh, we were mm-hmm. down there. He he was, uh, there was, and then there were 10 victims, I think, and then there was a brief, another couple of years, and then uh, they were able to get the DNA
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, because it had gone on so long, so uh, that, as Steven said there some of the cases were caught that way, they just had to wait.
1: I wanted to talk about the BTK killer because one of the issues that came up was he was inactive for a while, then he became active again, and part of the profiling was to provoke him and and I was wondering if after he was provoked again. Uh, by the FBI to try to bring him out, and you know, I tell the story about how he, how he, uh, with the floppy disk, right, floppy disk, and he gave himself away, and basically he was caught this way. But did you, you ever provoke somebody who, who you know, by who by reacting to him um, and making him that he then went out and committed more crimes because he was provoked?
0: Yeah. Well, we, we did that in one of the chapters on the use of media. That was right. where. It it was so helpful to try to draw him out. And uh, I know that uh, Douglas did a lot of work on that and how to help the local police get to their media and to use the newspaper in those days as a way to get him to communicate more. And that's exactly what happened with Mm BTK, and obviously others, uh, Berkowitz, uh, some of the others were um a lot of them would try to communicate and it's the ego that gets them mm-hmm, they want yeah. they, they want that and one of the best things it can be to do an anniversary reaction if you have a cold case anniversary mm-hmm. kind of summary and that might, that was the way that they actually got the uh raider to come forward he he wanted to criticize some of the way that he was portrayed
1: now you didn't get me right um yeah <laughs> you're too harsh. I'm not that, uh, <laughs> but, but right. it, it's interesting that you can, you can uh, provoke them, um, with a, with a clever strategy. Um, it's certainly used on the television shows all the time too, that, that, that same approach. It, you, it works perfectly in 10 minutes on the television shows. But, but in this case, uh, he gave away his information, um, by, by sending a floppy disk in with some information. Um, and didn't, he didn't realize that you could do the, the, uh, There's background information on the floppy disk, which gives away the location and stuff like that. So um, that was that was brilliant. But the uh, other people, other famous uh, serial killers who were caught by by wanting the attention. um, You know, you mentioned Berkowitz. That wasn't something you worked on, but a similar case, right?
0: Right. Yes, that, that, that's true. I'm trying to think of some of the others that we had. Uh we had two out of we had thirty-six serial killers in the study, and there were two that the they had to give themselves up, that the police never were able to catch them. Kemper, of course, was one. Right. And uh yeah, he had to call in and and say, Go to my address and you'll find my mother and her friend. So right. sometimes they are that good, if you will, with getting away with it that mm-hmm. uh you you don't get them.
1: Yeah, you, you mentioned in the book, there were two unusual cases that gave you uh, that they were more self-aware than most of the, uh, of the serial killers. And, uh, right. and, and uh, that was Kemper, uh, the man that we, the, with, the tall man with the mustache that we heard speak earlier, um, and a guy named Matty Rossi or something, something like that. Um, Monty
0: Russell, yeah. yeah. Monty Russell.
1: Right, yeah. yeah. Um, why don't you talk about the distinctions? Uh, because they were both interesting cases where they, they they thought about it a lot more um, of what they were up to and still confused themselves, but still they are more self-aware, as you said.
0: Right. And and it's important to look at them as uh, in that manner. We've talked a little bit about Kemper. He was someone that had to com- quickly kill his victim. The, the clip that you showed, he was talking about shooting his victim from he's at the driver's seat and the victims are in the back seat and he shoots them. And he talks about shooting through the, the head seat and so forth, mm-hmm. and then possessing the body. So that was what was important to him and mm-hmm. the whole um, um, dismemberment. Now, Monty Rissa was very different. He was one that would rape first, mm-hmm. and then he would kill. Mm-hmm. And he didn't start that right away. He had a, a long period of escalation. He had about 12 rapes well-documented in, in the records we were able to find up until the time when he... Uh, was only nineteen I mean this he started out as a teenager, yeah, and his first murder was she had he had captured her, he had raped her, and she tried to get away from him, and he got very angry mm-hmm. and so that 's what and he hadn 't thought of it before it 's just that he that at that moment he killed her. The second one he did he thought a little bit more about it, but it was when he got to the third victim where he said that is where it really had set in so his determination to kill mm-hmm. was not developed if you will for a, a time period now he also let one of his victims go mm-hmm. so that he did have some compassion she was uh, pleading with him that she was caring for her father that had cancer mm-hmm. and his brother at the time was going through a series of cancers mm-hmm. and he let her go yeah so uh that didn't happen, I don't think, in many of the other cases that we had. No. So he was very different, uh, certainly personality-wise, certainly in, in his commission of the crime, and uh, from Ed Kemper. Both pretty articulate. And I think mm-hmm. if you had watched the Mindhunter show, he said something that all of them seemed to say. It's like w- when the uh, the, uh, the agents say, we're here to try to understand why you did what you did, he turns to them and he says, well, I hope you do because I'd like to know myself. Right. And many of them just don't understand why they kill. They're obsessed with it. They're compulsed to do it, but they don't understand where its origin comes from.
3: Mm-hmm. That's also one of the sort of early misconceptions that the BSU and Dr. Burgess had to face when they first started going after serial killers. You know, the FBI said, why would you waste your time? These are just crazy people. These are just monsters. There's nothing more to it than that. But I think through the research that Dr. Burgess did, uh, you know, she found and that, that these killers were very complex individuals. They could be empathetic. They could be charming. They understood uh, reality very well. But they just also had this element of fantasy that they rehearsed over and over in their heads to the point that that fantasy became more important than reality itself. It became something that was almost sacred. So they had to constantly go towards that fantasy until they uh, tried to make it something that was perfectly realized in in the real world.
1: Do you think that video games that are like this um, help the them do their fantasies almost realistically or do you think that it can because in one of your cases you say that, that the, the the imagery that set the person off came from detective magazines like detective comic books. So there's nothing new about about the video games versus the detective comic books. It's the imagery um and, and there are people who talk about, like say, Japanese society that has has a, a, a sort of comic book uh violent underclass not underclass, but right part of the society, and yet they, they, they have very little crime in their society itself. So what are after being in this field for a while, what are your thoughts about that?
0: Well, yes, I think that the visual imagery, it's, uh, the detective magazines, what that was used for was more of a projective technique to find out what it was mm-hmm. in the suspect's, in the uh, person we were interviewing's mind, mm-hmm. that was arousing to him because we knew that would be the key mm-hmm. Uh, and he does say, in one of the videos that you you shown, he did say that there were times when he would just touch the victim. He knew her and so forth, but he just was compelled to kill her. Mm-hmm. That it just took that. And that had to have come from somewhere. And so using the detective magazines to try to ma- narrow down more specifically was very, very helpful.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about... Um... Henry Lewis Wells, the second uh, video clip, uh, he said some very, very fascinating things um, that, that you recorded in the book. Uh, one of them was that he, he wasn't really inside of himself, that he was uh, hovered above himself, and that it took two hours sometimes afterwards to come back down. So he hovered above himself while he was doing this. I, I, I'm sure you're aware that, that uh, NDEs, near-death experiences, people describe almost exactly the same experience. So, and, 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 and of course, there's also this whole tradition of uh, yogis in India and, and uh, Buddhist monks in other places trying to get to that state of mind, which this guy was in when he committed uh, his, his killings, um, which is a fascinating you know, difference. And he, he, he was the one who killed his friends. Another odd thing, you know, and his, yes. uh, his his co-workers.
0: Yes, and and what you're describing, uh, it, there's a technical term. It's almost like a dissociative state, right. where they go out of themselves, if you will, and that's exactly what he described. Mm. And I I think you said it perfectly. It's uh, it's that super state or that altered state. I call it an altered state, mm. where they're looking down at at the at, obviously at the victim. And acting and not totally aware of themselves of what's going on. So that is something that others have said, other suspects have said, or other killers have said, and we really need to understand that. And I think that the question is, well, how do they get into that state? What is it that gets them there? Is it just being in the, in the situation with the victim, or sometimes it can be because of drugs mm-hmm. um, that can change a person's state of mind. Well, we know that, and I think in that case, that was part of it. So all of those things became so important for us to really, or or could it be that there was more of a, a, a state that had been a chronic state in the person's mind? Mm-hmm. So we were always mindful of trying to understand as best we could the kind of baseline of the mental state of the person and then compare it to the state that they were able to describe when they actually did the killing, and then the state afterwards. We always looked at the before, during, and after mm-hmm. part of a crime.
1: You, you mentioned in the book, uh, I'm going to come back to that in a second, but you mentioned in the book that for a lot of the killers, it's not the killing that's important, it's the rituals afterwards, as if yes. it's setting up for a ritual. Um, it's setting
0: up for a ritual. It can be before, too, mm-hmm. and it can be
2: after. Mm-hmm. Yeah
1: and bringing in a, every other culture you know from ancient times but but there was a lot of ritual killing um that that took place uh, for the last couple thousand years i mean it's, it's it's been minor for the last couple hundred years you know from society but there were lots of ritual killings and that that was a big part of of how people dealt with uh with their relationship with the universe or however they want to put it um and uh, those, uh, I mean, if Carl Jung is right at all, some of those imageries uh, must be still in us, and some people may be afflicted by them, uh, who knows. But, but the, big, the big question for me about this is, you know, you, you, you identify this, and as you said, it's not just this one serial killer, but other ones with this dissociative state, and then there are thousands or even millions of people in, in, in uh, trying to pursue this as a spiritual goal, to get into a dissociative state so that they're, their universe goes along, and they just accept the universe and witness it. it, it there, there's plenty of descriptions, not only in Carlos Castaneda with the drugs, but, but in, in uh, Buddhism and, and Hinduism as the state that you're trying to aim for to prove that you are a spiritual being. I, I find that fascinating that they're the same experience. Um, and and yes. maybe we'll figure that out in the next couple hundred years. But, uh, but there it is. Uh, we, 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 we've got two strands one who thinks it's the great, the greatest good on earth, and the other, it's pretty obvious, it's not good for them. Uh. I
3: think one of the one of the points that Dr. Burgess, uh, you, you know, made pretty clear to me too was that it is this ritualistic element. Mm-hmm. If you're thinking about this one fantasy, this one concept over and over and over again, you, you know, that does become sacred to you, and that is uh, a vehicle that will elevate you to what you think is a higher state. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, for these killers, they just they got stuck in this way of thinking this very patterned way of thinking and that's what uh sort of led them down the path that they ended up on and then they were constantly chasing that high again once they experienced it the first time you know either they they weren't able to live out that fantasy as perfectly as they'd originally imagined it or the high wore off and so they had to go and kill again so there are those elements too that are pretty similar to what you're talking about in um sort of sort of elevating consciousness capacity
1: and I think it's that's just a fascinating part of, of, of the book um, because it, it certainly makes it human because it's a, an attempt at something, and this is the negative part of it. I mean, we people who study it realize there's a whole spectrum for almost everything that we do. There's there's wonderful uh, romantic sexual behavior, and there's absolutely awful, uh, you know, cruel sexual behavior. It's almost like all of our actions are neutral, and and what we bring to it psychologically uh gives it almost all of its meaning but but there we are um and uh i'd like to remind our audience that if you have any questions for either ann or steven uh that you can send them in uh, through the chat room but there are a couple in already and not too unpredictably one of the first ones is uh which is your favorite uh, criminal uh, detective on tv <laughs> 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 who who do you think who do you think does this the best as far as the tv goes any, or, or, or can you not stand watching the shows? <laughs>
0: yeah, I don't have time. I don't know if I have a, a favorite. Um, I don't have a favorite.
3: You seem, you seem to get along better with the real-life versions of them.
0: <laughs> right, right. I've dealt with more of the real-life versions, right, yeah.
1: <laughs> well, here's another question. I don't know if you're familiar with the neurologist work, but there's some uh, uh, some work in neurology that's trying to locate uh, uh, lesions in the brain that are responsible for criminal behavior and then be able to predict and advance this. Have you looked into it at all? And do you think that this is part of what you're doing or do you think it's a totally different thing and don't don't think it's uh, effective?
0: Oh, no. I think that there has been a lot of, of research. They, they have speculated on that. It mm-hmm. certainly should be done. I know that anytime you have a serial killer and you go to trial, they have to have a full neurological workup because they're looking for anything, any possible explanation. Do they mm-hmm. have a tool or Do they have, you know, some other kind of thing? So I think that's all very much in the realm of research and it's important. And um, yeah, there, there could be, but I, they've never really defined, definitively said that there was one Uh, that also gets you into the nature versus nurture uh, aspect. Is this something that you, is there genetic loading on any of this, or is it more that the person is uh, the the way they're brought up? And we really take the the latter that it is more in the uh, developmental phase that something goes wrong. Something is, uh, is fixated on it. becomes almost a, I think as Stephen was just saying that they just develop this, small kernel of 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 uh, of a violent act and it just goes over and over and then they act it out and if it doesn't doesn't make it like they think it will then they got to repeat it so that's part of the the terrible part of it is they keep trying to improve their their um, fantasy and it ends up with more victims
1: yeah, you, you mentioned the genes. So the, the DNA researchers think, well, maybe there's a, there's a, one particular gene that causes you to be a criminal, and, and and neurologists think it might be something in the brain, and behaviorists think it's something else. So the, the, these all these things interact with each other, but there's no one's at all close to uh, you no. know a, a simple answer for this, and that's why your standardization works uh, so well for 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 bringing it down to a little bit you know a little bit easier to find the people that are doing it. Um, the the uh, Next question uh, that's being asked is, um, again, something we did talk a little bit about. But if the perpetrator is outside the norm or intentionally does that knowing about your standards, would that make it easier for them to hide? Do you think that somebody, a criminal, could look at the standardization of of, um, this criminal profiling and figure out, say, say they're a woman or a minority or something like that, and they're not. They're not supposed to be in this mix, and then they can somehow do their crimes in a way that makes it harder for them to be found. Do you find many criminals that are that far thinking in advance?
0: Well, we find many criminals that are very interested in what we've been writing. I know that uh-huh. uh, all of us have <laughs> received requests for for uh, our articles to maybe do exactly what you're saying. And uh, are they learning? Uh, will they be able to be a better killer, if you will, get away with it more. I mean, that actually is something we are going to be looking at, is to talk to people that have gotten away with their crimes mm-hmm. and find out how they were so successful, mm-hmm. because that hasn't actually been asked in that particular way. So mm-hmm. maybe we'll have some answers for you. But I'm always interested in how, look at look at Kemper, he was so very good mm-hmm. at getting away with his crimes. And yet they left plenty of red flags around that uh, could have mm-hmm. been picked up but weren't.
3: But the killers were, and this is something that came out in Dr. Burgess's research. Uh, One of the themes of the killers was they were very interested in the investigations. They paid a lot of attention to them. They like to try and insert themselves by offering to be helpful in these investigations. Mm -hmm. So that cat and mouse game was was, uh, sort of central to the crimes as well. That was a big part of the act. Um, And a lot of them actually had wanted to be law enforcement officers or be in some position of authority too. So they, you know, that... They kind of got off on that. that. That was a big deal to them to match wits with the officers.
1: Yeah. Interesting. The, the inserting into the into the you know yeah. people talk about that somebody goes missing and then they often find somebody that's out there looking for them is, is the responsible party. I mean, you, you had a couple of cases like that, I'm sure. Oh, I'd... yes.
0: Yes. Yes. That, well, more than a few there. That was often you would predict that they were going to do that if it was a type of killing that they had re- really planned and so forth. Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, they could also probably make people look in the other direction. You know, it's like, <laughs> look over there. <laughs> yeah. um, one of the really interesting things you talk about in the book is, you know, trying to answer the question, why do killers kill? And, and one of your answers is they try to make the world right again. They try to, to, something's out of order and they're trying to put it back in order and they feel a violent act will put it back in order. That's another big cultural issue because we, we have a lot of history saying this has gone wrong. Someone's got to take a punishment for it, a scapegoat. Someone, someone must be punished violently in order to put us back with the gods in the right uh, thing or with one god in particular. So this is, even, even if people aren't religious, it's part of culture to think that somehow, I mean, just like uh, the idea of, of spanking children, that that will make things right. Or, or that if someone has done something terrible, we should torture them um, in order to get the right answers out of them. It's, it's, it's built, not built into our, our, uh, us, I think, inherently, but it's been a big part of our cultures. And so um, it makes it a little easier to understand them, the, crim- the, the serial murderers, when they say, I did this to make the world right again. You want to talk about that? Because it's just a weird, it makes it sound so weird, (laughs) what we do.
0: Right. It it makes it sound a little counterintuitive, but also you wonder if that has happened to them. And so they're then repeating that to try to rebalance things, as you say, Mm -hmm. that that could be going on. Because we do know that there's been a lot of... uh, in their histories, they can have some pretty bad experiences. Yeah. So that, that can be part of the, the, the answer there. Um, but their thinking, you can see where their thinking is uh, certainly flawed at certain levels.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, they, I mean, that was interesting. There were a lot of cases, uh, in the Jobert case comes to mind, where something traumatic happened to this killer uh, early in their life. And oftentimes the victims then would match Uh, Their age when they experienced that traumatic event. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost like they're trying to go back and set things right by forcing other people through that same experience to make things equal. As a way of resetting, uh, to sort of take back that moment by doing it to someone else, and it goes back to this fundamental element that is, you know, true to all of them is is this idea of control, to taking back control, to having control, and they would do that with their victims. They would try and do that in the interviews with the profilers by trying to test them to see if they truly knew the story of the the crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I think, and, and it's like you said, culture cultures at large. You know, sacrificing someone so that they're will be rain is mm. an element of control and that that's mm. that was really consistent
1: in your quiet moments did you ever think we have to change this part of our entire culture about about sacrificing something to 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 uh put things right in order to put an end to this kind of attitude that people have i mean i don't think that it would it would take such a long time for any kind of shift like that at all but mm. It's, well, we certainly have to do
0: something because murder rates are going up. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure there are uh, serial murders, but there are different types. Uh, obviously, we know there are different motives to murder, but uh, it is a, the violence in our society is certainly, people have to be concerned about it.
1: Do you, you feel know, that, uh, this is another side effect, but we, we bring the pandemic into almost everything nowadays, but do you think that people being locked down, not living their normal lives and everything, that the frustrations of all that has, is contributing to the rise in the, in the violence and the murder rate and everything?
0: Um, I haven't seen any evidence of that, but it certainly is something to look at. Uh, I think that the types of, those types of of murders are. I'm not sure that I'm seeing that as a motive. Mm-hmm. So I'd have to see more on the statistics of uh, why why we're seeing like what 25% in some cities.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good the first question. big increase in decades, right? Um,
0: yes, yes.
1: So we have a question from uh, someone in the audience, Marsha Maitri. Uh She said, "Does the BSU ever work with forensic genealogists?" You know this this idea. You oh, did have that's... you did have a case like that in your book, so.
0: Yeah, yeah. very interesting a question. Yeah, that's a new area. Yeah. Mean, that's one to get into. It's really uh, uh, very very interesting. They yeah they did try that on. It wasn't really exactly that the BTK case, mm-hmm. where they used the um, daughter's DNA, but that's a great area. Look at they've had a couple of real successes in that area.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So uh, I'm going to be watching it.
1: Yeah, yeah. You, uh, why don't you explain for the audience that doesn't know what that is? But it, it's it's like tracking down the DNA uh, through oh. through uh, genealogical things, and it's scaring people who who've all had their you know, uh, oh, right. genes done by these things that that the, all the information might get one of their cousins uh, end up right. in jail, right?
0: <laughs> right. Well, they've they've warned people about that. I know when this all this uh, uh, genealogy came out, uh, or you could send your DNA in and they would do all this to it. So they did warn warn people, hmm. and uh, they have found out that the DNA. Uh, well, first of all, mitochondrial DNA is where it's uh, transferred by the mother, so hmm. that that we've realized but then this is using other family members using going to the family tree and seeing if any brothers or cousins or aunts or uncles or whatever could be a uh, possible match for the dna and it's as i said it that they've hit on some cases uh the gold gate killer i think was that I, I think he was Caught that way,
1: mm-hmm.
3: yeah. I think that was the one George alluded to earlier. Was a okay. case out of California, the Golden State Killer, and he'd been yep. inactive for for decades, but had been incredibly prolific while he was active. Uh, and yeah, it was it was a, a family member of his that had done a, a DNA, and they they pinpointed him through that.
1: And there was a case I read about where uh, it went back and forth because they had, you know, they they were getting close. They knew that there was something there, um, and it turned out that. Somebody related had had, a, that they had had a child out of wedlock that he, they didn't even know about, and that that child was a perfect match, and that was the one who committed the crime.
0: Uh-huh. Aha.
1: Very you think, good. Not only do you find out <laughs> that you have a child you don't know about, but he's a criminal. <laughs> right?
0: right? And he's the criminal. Oh, dear. That wouldn't be a good phone
1: call to get. No, that would yeah. not be a good phone call to get. <laughs> and we hope nobody in the audience gets that phone call. Um, yeah. But yeah. if you do, uh, you know, it helps solve a crime. And, and, and therefore, you know, you should cooperate.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Very good.
1: Anything that you'd like to uh, tell the audience? Uh, one, one last story or one last thing before we say that that was a really good, that was a great conversation yeah. about this. Anything you'd like to tell? Any, any one person that stands out where you felt that person, if not for just like a little bit of a move over in one direction, that person could have lived a normal life instead of a serial killer life. Were there yeah. any ones that just really affected you that way?
0: Yeah. So I think that that, that is very important that, that if there had been somebody in the family situation that had been able to support, be a, a good mentor or two, I think would have made a big difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of these Uh, Serial killers had the absent father, we found that out had the absent father so they didn't have a male authority figure that would be able to kind of keep them on track. So I I think that uh, there were a lot of situations that might have turned out very differently if there had been someone in the family. And that's why we try to say to the child of uh, the uh, developmental aspect and the social networks are really important resources for kids to grow up so that we don't have mm. uh, we aren't growing any serial killers, so to speak. And we try to keep the victimization. The other thing is, of course, to try to do all we can to understand what, how this happens so that we can prevent um uh, more victims our whole theory was to try to show how we could prevent more victims and mm. and then you would have obviously no fewer serial killers
1: right. And, and I'd add to
3: you that one of one of the uh, important things to Dr Burgess when we first started on this project uh, was keeping in mind the victim. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, stories about serial killers, pop culture TV shows sensationalizes them to a degree. And Dr. Burgess made it very clear that she wanted this book to speak for the victims. and And I'll let you say a little more about that, Dr. Burgess. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, the victim is often very forgotten. I mean, how many, you know, the serial killers, how many can you tell me their victims' names? No, it's lucky that they can remember any. Mm -hmm. And yet there have been many, many victims. So we've always tried to impress upon that. And the family is very important. The victim's family, but not to forget the killer's family. Mm -hmm. They too suffer in their own way of having raised uh or lived with a serial killer so the families are something that we we need to put more attention to whether it be the victim's family or the offender's family
1: yeah and i mean you you, you focus on that in your book too at the end and i think that's just wonderful but you also mentioned that the profiling that you did you don't only profile the the, the scene you profile the victims and that yes. that helps that helps solve the crime too yes. I, f- I found that fascinating In in what way does knowing more about the victims give you that access? Yeah. Well,
0: that was the primary reason that they brought me down to the BSU, because I had worked with victims. And if you realize, uh, investigators don't work with victims. They're looking for the the, the criminal. Right. So they didn't have a lot of experience in that. So that all the questions that I would get when they were profiling would be around the victim. And what could we learn? Why was she targeted? Why was she killed? Mm-hmm. Uh, what was her life like? What can we learn from all of this so that we could then try to find out who might have uh, what clues there were to be able to find out more. So victimology was the very first, um, well, first they would go, they'd do organized, disorganized, they get themselves settled on that and then mm-hmm. they go in the victims.
1: Well, we can't turn back the clock and, and dis- disallow divorce anymore. And we can't, I'm, I'm sure, uh, although there could be a more conservative time in the future that does that to say fathers have to stay home, you know I mean? Make that, Make that the rule again, because so many criminals have that absent father uh, problem, et cetera, et cetera. So that's not the solution. Um, Understanding what makes it happen. Um, If that understanding were made available to potential problems, you know, like especially if if you took like this one guy who started raping people when he was a teenager, if you had kids that were picked up in the early stages of their violent careers. And given some explanation for why they're feeling this way instead of just punishing them, they might, you might be able to not just keep them in jail the whole time, but uh, we have a very difficult problem on our hands and we, really useful. Uh, first, the book is really useful, and second, the work that you did was fantastic for for helping us move forward in how to deal with this without just you know catching whoever we want to, chop their heads off, you know, and, and move on, right? We have to do it in a more civilized way. So thank you again, and... It was great talking with both of you. And so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 119th year of enlightened discussion. Thank you very much for joining us. We hope we'll see you again.
0: You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate.